Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, as we are continuing to look at Jesus' upper room discourse, the conversation he had with the 11 remaining faithful, believing disciples who were still in that room after, Jesus, after Judas had left to go betray the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Well, I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, Comfort for Troubled Souls. Comfort for Troubled Souls. You know, the Scripture commands us, commands us both in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, to make joyful music to the Lord to submit this music to the Lord as a sacrifice, as an offering of praise. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 96, the psalmist gives this command, O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Is anybody here in the earth? Well, then this command is for you. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul gives gives a similar command. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Singing to the Lord is the clear command of Scripture. And I'm thankful that each week Bryce and the team of of worship leaders leads us to do just that, that we sing to the Lord. Bryce is very intentional about selecting music that is not only melodic, and singable, but is also biblically accurate, that confirms and affirms doctrinal truth to our hearts about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, because that's the goal. And frankly, there are some songs that don't meet that criteria. There are times when people say, hey, they played this song on the radio. Why don't we sing this one at church? And we'll say, let's give it an honest appraisal. We'll listen to it and we'll go, I don't think so. Because it's not accurate. It's not biblical. And that's not just for modern music. There's actually some good old-timey songs that, when you examine them, they're not really faithful to what the Bible teaches us. And, um, in fact, several songs are based upon a faulty translation of the passage we're going to be studying today in John chapter 14. My hometown of Waimama, Florida, yes, that's a real place, Waimama, is the uh, destination for many who are part of the Church of God denomination. Cleveland, Tennessee is known as the headquarters of the Church of God denomination. That's where the flagship university, Lee University, is located. That's where the publishing house and all of the offices for Church of God are located. But the campground, the camp meeting place for Church of God is in Waimama, Florida, where I grew up. And there in Waimama, there is not only the campground and camp meeting place, but there's also a small uh, area of cottages that are set aside for retired Church of God pastors and and their wives. Uh, They only have one wife each, by the way, their wife. Um, One such wife was a lady by the name of Mrs. Stevens. She was actually twice widowed by Church of God pastors, and she lived by herself in one of those cottages. As a dutiful, longtime Church of God pastor's wife, she was always the church pianist. And so what she did in her later years is she would provide uh, piano lessons to children in the Y Mama community. I was one of those children. 
And so when I was 10 years old, my mom saw that I did have a propensity for music. And so she uh, began to pay the $2.50 a lesson, boy, that's expensive, to give me piano lessons with Mrs. Stevens. So here's what happened. Every day when the final bell rang at Waimama Elementary School on Thursdays, I would leave the school campus and I would begin walking that 10 blocks all the way to Mrs. Stevens's, Stevens' house, which was near the Church of God campground, on the Church of God campground. And there, when I arrived after walking through the hot Florida sun, Mrs. Stevens had waiting for me a ice-cold glass and a chilled can of Coca-Cola. That's worth two fifty right there, I'll tell you. And so she always sat there at the kitchen table, and we, she would watch me enjoy that Coke. And then we'd go into her, her living room where I would sit at the piano. She'd sit beside me, and we'd go through the, the material I was supposed to have practiced the previous week. And if I mastered that, that material, she would then assign new material for me to, to practice and to learn. But every week, uh, our lesson ended with the same ritual. As soon as we were done covering the material and I would get new material, she said, well, you know what it's time for now, Troy. And she would get up from where she was seated. She would walk across the living room to her electronic organ. She would flip the organ on. And here's one of the inaccurate songs, but we would play it and we would sing it together every week. It was called Mansion Over a Hilltop. I've got a mansion. Many of you have heard it. Here's how the first verse goes. I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver. Can you see little Troy doing this? And a little gold. But in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Now, before you say amen, this song is inaccurate. I didn't know that back then. Otherwise, I would say, Miss Stevens, we can't do this song. No, probably not quite like that. But we'll see from the passage today how this is based on really an inaccurate translation of the Bible. Do we have a mansion over the hilltop that makes the Biltmore Mansion look like a shack? Do we? This faulty idea is based on, again, a misunderstanding of the passage before us today. There's also songs that I can remember that um, put forward the idea that your mansion in glory is based on the amount of building material you send on up ahead. That based on your good deeds, your good works, well, that's how big your mansion's going to be. Again, it's extrapolated from the passage we're going to read today, but that ain't true. And so what does Jesus mean in this passage? Here's what I think we'll discover. The promises that Jesus is actually making here bring much greater comfort to troubled souls than some kind of ornate dwelling in faraway land. So look with me in your Bible as I read our focal passage this morning. This is the inspired and errant word of God. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So this passage begins here in chapter 14, verse 1, with this charge to the disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Why would he say that? Because a lot of the things that Jesus has been talking about are troubling. They're very troubling. He had just told them that one of their number, one of them who was one of the inner 12 who had been with them for three years, seen everything, heard everything, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. That's troubling. Jesus had told them, I'm going somewhere, and where I'm going, you can't go. You can't follow me. Now, this is their Lord, their teacher, their master. That would be troubling. And then to Peter, he said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. I think Jesus may have looked directly in Peter's eyes when he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because there was a lot of troubling things about them. And then Jesus gives the antidote for trouble. He gives the antidote for troubled hearts. We know what the theme of the gospel of John is. We've been looking at it week in and week out. The the point of the gospel of John is to engender belief, to engender faith. The thesis statement for the 21 chapters of John is this. These things have been written to you so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, you might have life in his name. This is the point of John's gospel. Believe in Jesus. And what does Jesus say at the beginning of this discussion? Believe in God. Believe also in me. In fact, the end of this section, in verse 11, Jesus repeats the same command. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This whole passage is bookended with calls for disciples to believe. And you know what the best comfort for troubled souls is? Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And that's what these two paragraphs we've just read are all about. So the question is, how do we appropriate that? How do we apply that? What does it mean to believe in God and believe in his son? And how does that translate out that it will bring great comfort even in times of trouble? Well, I want us to look at and look at more detail these instructions Jesus gave to his 11 disciples just hours before his arrest and subsequent crucifixion. The first one is this. The first comfort for troubled souls that Jesus gives is the expectation of intimacy with the Father. He gives to them, and by extension, he gives to us an expectation of deep intimacy with the creator of the universe. Intimacy with the Father. Look again at verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, there you can be also. I want you to circle in that passage on your Bible or in the outline, the word rooms, the word rooms. The, The word is most literally translated dwelling place, dwelling place or abiding place or abode. This is a noun form of the verb in Greek, meno, which means to abide, to dwell, to remain. In fact, in the next chapter, chapter 15, when Jesus gives the metaphor of the the vine and the branches, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, meno, dwell, abide in me, remain in me. In fact, 10 times in chapter 15, in that metaphorical description, Jesus uses the verb form of the noun that's translated rooms right here. Abide, dwell with me. What this word conveys is this sense of intimacy, this sense of relationship, dwelling together, a dwelling place with God. And Jesus is saying, guess what? My father's house, it's huge. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. It may or may not have a big, big yard where you can play football. I don't know, but it is a big, big house. And there's lots of place for you to dwell, for you to remain, for you to abide intimately with God. Now you need to know, I love the King James Bible. I cut my teeth on the King James Bible. I grew up reading and studying the King James Bible from the age of 12 until I was 21 years old. Every morning, every year, I read through the King James Bible cover to cover with my dad. It was the, the Bible that I memorized. It is a reliable, sufficient, and strong translation. But I'm afraid there's a translation mistake in the King James Version. Huh. There is. And I'm going to explain to you how they made the mistake. The mistake is that, what, how does the King James Version translate rooms there? Mansions, right, mansions. Where, where did they get that from? Did the King James translators in 1600 just dream it up? No, they didn't. So they heavily relied on what's known as the Latin Vulgate. In 381 AD, Jerome, an incredible uh, ancient scholar and church father, he took the Greek manuscripts he had available to him and he translated into the, the scholarly language of the day, the scholarly language of the Roman Empire, which was Latin. For a thousand years, the Latin Vulgate translation was the translation of the church. It's what the church used to understand Scripture, to understand uh, who God is. And the Latin word translated here for rooms or dwelling place is the Latin word mansiones from which you can easily see the word mansions. The only problem is the Latin word mansionis literally means a room. It doesn't mean our idea and concept of the built or mansion. And so the King James translators, they saw this Latin word mansionis and they said, ah, mansions. Now this uh, noun is only used two times in the entire New Testament and both times it's used, it's right here in John chapter 14. I want you to show, show you the other place, verse 23. Look at verse 23 in the King James Version. This is what the Bible says. Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him. And we, father and son, will come unto him and make our abode with him. Would mansion fit in that context? Of course not. Me and the father are going to come and make our mansion with you. That's not what the word means. 
The word means an intimate place of dwelling, an intimate place of existing, of remaining, of abiding. And so that's why I say, and I belabor this, so that we understand the concept Jesus is saying. He's not saying, I'm going to make a place that's ornate and gold and silver lined for you to dwell in for all of eternity. I'm going to prepare a place where you can have intimacy of fellowship with God. And friend, that is much more comforting than some kind of big house. Intimacy with God. In fact, notice a couple of things about this, and this is why I want you to understand this. The promise is for a person, not a place. The promise Jesus is making, which will bring great comfort to troubled souls, is the promise of a person, not just a place. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you where? To the mansion? No, to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. This promise Jesus is making after he's been giving clear instructions, I'm going away, I'm about to leave, I'm going to be going away from you, guess what, I'm going to take you to myself. This is what brings comfort, is is being in the presence of God through Jesus. And Jesus' house, it's not an apartment high-rise where you get an apartment on some floor. It's not even a subdivision. It is a big, big house, and we're all going to be living together in the same house in all these different rooms. It's a roomy place where we get to abide with God forever, because here's the promise, being with Jesus. That's the promise. In fact, let me ask you a question. What is the essence of heaven? If you could boil all of it down, all of the things we understand and know from the Bible about heaven, what would you say this is the essence of heaven? Would it be beauty? Would the essence of heaven for you be the prospect of reuniting with with family and friends who have gone on before? Would the, the essence of heaven for you be this lavish banquet? Some of us like to eat and we're like, yeah, man, that's heaven. Would the essence of heaven even be a pain-free environment, not just physically pain-free, but emotionally pain-free, psychologically pain-free? He will wipe all of our tears away. Is that the essence of heaven? I'm going to tell you what the essence of heaven is, the immediate presence of Jesus. That is the essence of heaven. If Jesus ain't there, it's not heaven. And by contrast, Having the immediate presence of Jesus is heavenly. That's heaven. Since today's Mother's Day, I was, uh, I've been reminiscing this week about my mom, and particularly my relationship with my mom and how she taught me. That's a much younger me, around 18 years old, with my mom. Uh, she had an extra large print Schofield reference study Bible on the kitchen table that she read every day and did her devotional with. And she had this likeness of Jesus hanging framed beside where she slept in, her, in my mom and dad's bedroom. And I remember one day being in her room and I saw this picture and I said, mom, I've never seen a picture like this of Jesus before. Where'd you get, what is this for? Why'd you get it? And he said, she said, oh, I don't remember where I got it, but I just love it. I said, why is that? She said, because I just imagine." Jesus being pleased with me. I just imagine Jesus welcoming me. And I just imagine spending all of eternity with a Jesus who loves me. My mom got it. 
Now, this is just a picture. It's just a likeness. That's not what Jesus looks like. But the smiling face, I think, is an accurate representation of Jesus' love for you. That's heaven. Intimacy with Jesus. Heaven is the presence of the Savior, not just this place. It's a person. Here's the other thing. The preparation that Jesus makes for this place is through the cross, not some construction project. Twice Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. End of verse 2, beginning of verse 3. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so another erroneous idea that's been kind of extrapolated from this exchange is that Jesus has been on a 2,000-year-long construction project. Well, he was a carpenter on earth, surely in heaven. He's still building. He's still working. He's building out heaven, and it's going to be elaborate, and he's been constructing the heavenly place forever. I've even heard some preachers quip something to this effect. Well, heaven must be spectacular if it's taken Jesus this long to build it. Right? You ever heard something like that? Well, that's a kind of a winsome and cute idea, but that's not what Jesus is referring to here, some grand 2,000-year-long work construction project. Think about it. He spoke the universe into existence in an instant. You think it's taking him this long to build out heaven. Another thing this does not mean is that our home in heaven is somehow in disrepair, that he's fixing stuff up, that he's making some renovations. Here's how I know this is true. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 34. Talking about the end, he says, Then the king, that's Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from when? The foundation of the world. Heaven was done, it was completed, it was fully built out for you before you were even an idea, before you, your mom ever knew she was pregnant with you. Friends, before the foundation of the world, Jesus had already prepared a place in heaven for you as far as the physical place, the literal place. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you? I am going to prepare a place for you. Well, the answer centers on that word, go. Go. Jesus has already told these disciples he's going. Do you remember what the point was? The other chapter we studied last week, chapter 13. Notice what Jesus says there. Chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Peter picks up on this in verse 36. He says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow me afterward. So where was Jesus going when he told his disciples he was going somewhere? Where was Jesus going when he says, I go to prepare the place for you? Friends, he was going to the cross. He was going to the grave. And he was going to the glorious resurrection. And Peter, you can't follow me there. The cross is only Jesus' cross to bear. The grave was only Jesus' grave to be buried in, and the resurrection was only Jesus' resurrection, though we too will share with him in that resurrection. 
Where was Jesus going when he spoke these words? He was going to prepare the way, to prepare the means, to prepare what is necessary for us to experience intimacy with God. Heaven as a place was already prepared from before the foundation of the world. But what's not prepared in the chronology of John 14 right here in the narrative is the cross, the burial, and the resurrection. And Jesus is saying, I go, I am going to prepare the way to heaven for you, a place for you. Here's why he needed to do that. Because you can't enter heaven otherwise. You can't enter eternity based on your own righteousness. You can't enter heaven based on your own merit. You enter heaven only upon the imputed righteousness of Christ to your account. The cross is often referred to as that moment of the great exchange. Christ took your sinfulness, and by faith, he gives you his righteousness. And friends, that's how he prepares a place for you to have intimacy with God in heaven. It happens through the cross. And doesn't this bring great comfort to troubled souls? That Christ has made the way for us to know God and to experience intimacy with him. Here's the second way we can be comforted in times of trouble, and that is because he has given us the exclusive invitation to the Father. In verse 5, we see that Thomas has some confusion about what the Lord is saying. You keep talking about going, Lord. You're going somewhere. What do you mean going? You know, we often call Thomas what? Doubting Thomas. I think it would be better to call him honest Thomas because he often said things that other people are thinking. He just said it. Honest Thomas, notice what he says in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, in Jesus' response to honest Thomas's question, we have here in the Gospel of John now the sixth I am statement of Jesus. There are seven total. Jesus has already made several I am statements, and those statements are significant because by saying I am, he is making a pronouncement of deity. That's the name of God, the all-sufficient one, I am. And so Jesus has said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And to Martha and to Mary, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And now to these 11 in the upper room, he gives this sixth I am statement of deity. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I don't know if you noticed on the other I am statements, but he begins each one with what's called the definite article. The definite article is the word the, not a. He didn't say, I am a light. I am the light. He didn't say, I am a door or I am a shepherd you might choose to follow. I am the door. I am the shepherd. 
And so with each of those I am statements, there is incredible exclusiveness. He's speaking there. But the most exclusive I am statement Jesus said that's recorded for us in the Gospel of John is this one right here in verse 6. There are no other options, Jesus is saying. He is the exclusive way. Now, because of this, this exclusive claim by Jesus, not some preacher, Jesus said this, is not a popular statement in our postmodern world. You see, the mantra of postmodernity is that your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And all truth claims are equally valid. And for you to say, no, there is only one truth, that's highly offensive in our world today. To say this type of an exclusive statement, and that's why the world absolutely abhors the exclusive proclamations of Christianity. Now, despite the world's disdain for John 14, 6, the content of this saying uh, really tells us why we must not surrender Christ's exclusive claims, however ex- uh, offensive they may be. For not only is John 14, 6 true, John 14, 6 is the only answer for what the world really needs. Why? Because John 14, 6 tells us the only way to God. Whether you know it or not, everyone has a longing for God. Everyone has a desire for God. Why do you think humans have been creating their own gods for millennia? Why do you think the rabid atheist, he can't stop talking about God? He can't stop thinking about God. It's the first thing he thinks of in the morning and the last thing he thinks of at night. Why? Because he needs God. It gives him purpose. And what Jesus is saying here is that he is the only way to know God. He's the only way for sinners to be reconciled to God. He's the only way for the truth of God to be revealed to our hearts and correct our ignorance. He's the only way that we can be regenerated from death to life. Several years ago, a, a very famous megachurch pastor, I won't say his name, but 98% of you will know who I'm talking about, was on the Larry King show on CNN. I went back and watched that interview this week. And in this interview, uh, Larry King was pressing him about his uh, belief as a Christian pastor. And he said, if you are a Christian, you obviously believe that Jesus is the only way. And as such, you obviously believe that Jews and Hindus and Muslims, well, well, they can't go to heaven because you believe Jesus is the only way. And here's what he said to Larry King. Well, now, Larry, Jesus is the only way for me. But I can't say that about other people. A few minutes go by, and there's a caller. Larry King used to have viewers call his show. And the caller confronted him and said, I really appreciate you coming on the show, but I have to take exception to your answer. Why did you dodge Larry's question? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he said basically the same thing. Well, he's true for me. But that's up to God to judge other people. Wrong. (laughs) Jesus said, and if you're a Christian pastor, you must proclaim, he is the only way. And you can't get to the Father. You can't get to heaven. You can't get to the afterlife except through him. And it's not just that Jesus is simply 
a way for you and I personally. He is the exclusive way, which is why the second half says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He makes this exclusive proposition positively and negatively. Positively, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Negatively, no one comes to the Father except through me. What does that mean? There are no exceptions. There are no exclusions. There are no, well, what about, have you ever thought about? No, there's no other way, which is why we must take the gospel to those who don't know about him, which is why we are a church on mission, because he's the only way, church. We must tell them about Christ. Now, this is not on your outline, but it'll be on the screen. I'm going to break down what these three words, way, truth, and life, tell us about what Jesus has accomplished and how he brings us to God. This idea of the word way, I believe he's referring to the necessity of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Jesus alone provides access to the Father because our default state as human beings is alienated from God, separated from God, hostile to God. But Jesus is the way because he brings reconciliation with God. When Jesus says he's the truth, he brings revelation. Revelation. Our first parents, how did they sin? They were deceived by the lies of the evil one. Is the evil one still deceiving people today? Absolutely. He's been using his schemes for multiple millennia, and they work. That's why he keeps using them. And his primary method is lying, deception. And Jesus comes to give revelation of God, revelation of himself, because we are deceived, and he comes to give us, what's the antidote for deception? The truth. He says, I am the truth, and he's the life, and that's regeneration. Regeneration. The wages of sin is Let's try it again. The wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2 tells us that all of us in our natural state are spiritually dead. Apart from the regenerating work of God through his spirit, we would remain dead in our trespasses and sins. You must be born again. And so Jesus has come in that dead state to say, guess what? I'm the life. And he brings regeneration, newness of life. This is what Christ has come. And that's why the obvious conclusion is if Jesus is the way, he brings reconciliation to God. Jesus is the truth. He brings revelation of God. And Jesus is the life. He brings regeneration to God. Then the converse of that, no one comes to the Father except through me. Duh, of course not. He's the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. Now, with Jesus' statements about being the only way, the truth, and the life to the Father, no one comes to the Father but through me. This prompts some other questions among another one of the 11 disciples who were there in the room. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, if you would have known me, you would have known my Father also. And so now Philip speaks up. In verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. That leads right to the third truth Jesus shares with his disciples that brings great comfort to troubled souls. Number three, when you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at the exact imprint of the Father. And you'll see in just a minute where I get this word 
exact imprint. There are five times in this passage where Jesus says something to the effect, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the exact imprint of the Father. You've been trying to see the Father? You've been looking at me this whole time. In verse 7a, he says, if you'd known me, you would have known my Father. Verse 7b, from now on, you, don't, you know him and you've seen him. Verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? In verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus has been belaboring this point because obviously knuckleheads haven't gotten it. You want to know the Father? You want to see the Father? You want to come to know God? Well, you have. You've seen me. This is why it's so important that Jesus repeat this idea again and again. Because friends, as I mentioned earlier, this is the deepest human need the need to know God. And Jesus is the one and only one who can show us God. He revealed himself to mankind through the person of Jesus. And friends, this is the heart of the gospel. We desperately need to know God. We're separated from God, but Jesus has come to reveal the Father to us. When my mom died 11 years ago, I was, Amy and I were down there when she died at home, and then we made the arrangements for the funeral and visitation and all. My mom's sister, my Aunt Emma, lives in Palatka, Florida. She's still alive. She's 93. Um, When she heard mom died, she came down immediately. She stayed in a hotel there in town and came out to the farm during the day and was with us through the evenings, and then even after the funeral, she was with us. And I noticed something about Aunt Emma I hadn't noticed before. She looked a lot like Mom. She had the same mannerisms as Mom. She had the same giggle (laughs) as Mom. Even the same speech pattern and inflection as Mom. And so I found myself drawn to Aunt Emma that week. I just wanted to sit with her and talk with her because it was like sitting and talking to mom. Friends, to an infinitely greater degree, Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father. He has all the same mannerisms as the Father. He has all the same speech pattern of the Father. And friend, if you get to know Jesus, you get to know God. So why don't you sit down and talk to him? Spend some time with him. And that's why in John 14, 9, Jesus makes the vitally important statement that he reveals God to us. He reveals to us the Father. In fact, notice how the author of Hebrews put it in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He says, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus came to reveal the father and he, and he alone has the capacity to reveal God to us and to bring us to God. And you know what this is? Especially for those 11 disciples whose hearts are deeply troubled. 
It's, tr- it's comfort for troubled souls. But I know some of you may be thinking, well, that's well and good for those 11. They were there in the room with Jesus. Of course, they had comfort because they could see the Father there in Jesus. But I- I've never seen Jesus. How can I experience that comfort? And I would answer your question with a question. Haven't you? Haven't we just spent the last hour with Jesus? Haven't we just been sitting with him? Haven't we just been hearing him talk and communicate his love for us? Haven't you seen Jesus today? Now the question is, will you see Jesus tomorrow? I hope your only time of spending time with Jesus is not from 1045 to 12 here on Sunday mornings. I hope it's Jesus in the morning, Jesus in the new time, Jesus when the sun goes down. Every day, all day. And how do we spend time with Jesus? Through his word. All 66 books of the Bible point to Jesus, picture Jesus, and they portray Jesus. And as you come to know Jesus in the word, you come to know God. And that is our deepest need. And you know what that brings? Regular, intentional, focused communion with Jesus. What it brings is regardless of what you're going through. Some of you are experiencing pain on this Mother's Day. Spending time with Jesus brings comfort to troubled souls. And that leads to my last thought. Jesus relieves all anxiety and fear because he has opened the way and he is the way. 